Welcome to Story of a Storyteller. I'm your host, Connor Braden. This is the show where I found out all about the ins and outs of the lives of storytellers of all kinds. You can find my free novella, The Stolen Dagger, episode show notes, links to all sorts of amazing books, and more at connorbraden.com slash podcast. Enjoy! Hello, story lovers, and welcome back. Um, and not just welcome back, but welcome back to season five of the show. Yeah, five. I didn't think I'd get here either. I thought someone would have taken me out back and given me a good talking to, and I'd never be letting near a mic again. <laughs> well, why am I so mean to myself? Anyway, I have a cracker of a season in store for you. Uh, I really, really do. I'm. I just feel like every season of the show gets better and better, and the guests get just more interesting and more developed and more just. I don't know, just I'm excited about this season is all, but especially by today's guest, Sandy Phillips Kirkham. Before I continue, though, um, I do want to mention that this episode in particular heavily discusses the issue of clerical sex abuse. Um, So if that's something that you're not comfortable listening to or something you're, um, you know, upset by or anything, I would maybe give this episode a miss. However, I would say that my guest, Sandy, is an amazing person and uh, maybe give it a try anyway. <laughs> I know it's a, not an easy topic to discuss, but um, it was is a brilliant interview. So Sandy Phillips Kirkham is the author of the book Let Me Pray Upon You, um, and that's spelled pray, P-R-E-Y. Let Me Pray Upon You is her account of how a charismatic youth minister prayed upon her, a betrayal which left her broken, with a shattered faith and the ultimate shame of being blamed and forced from the church she loved so much. Now, Sandy is an advocate for victims of clerical abuse by being on the board for the Council Against Child Abuse. She has spoken before uh, before the Ohio Senate, uh, a court in Maryland, and has appeared on local television shows in Boston. Um, This is easily, without a doubt, one of the more heavy interviews I've ever done. Um, but Sandy inspired me and astounded me with how openly and honestly she spoke of her horrendous experiences. Um, so normally this is the part of the show now before the interview that I talk about my own writing and what I've been doing and everything. But I feel that Sandy's story is much more important. So we're letting her take center stage. So here is the interview. Hello, Sandy, and welcome to Story of a Storyteller. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm I'm doing okay. <laughs> I'm really happy to be starting season five. Um, and uh, you're going to be you're the first guest of season five, so it's great to have you on. <laughs> Good to be here. Um, so Sandy, you're the author of the book. Um, all the names gone from your head. Hang on, I look at my sheet. I have it here. Uh, well, let me hold it up for you. How about this? Me, oh, look at it. Teamwork. Uh, let there me you go. on you. Which yeah. I might say, I'll describe the cover for the for the um, listeners. It's um, a, a, just a normal white image. And then it just says, let me pray with you in typed uh, font. But the pray with has been crossed out with like red spray paint. And pray has been spelled with an E in spray paint. And the with mm-hmm. has been replaced with a pawn. And there's a wolf. And is it a, what's, what's the other animal? Lamb. A oh, lamb. lamb. So like there's, it's it's how the 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 cover tells a story and we will get to that story but first could you maybe just we'll start way back can you tell me your earlier memories um well i it's interesting i have my memories kind of in a four chapter book in my mind um i have the memories of before my parents divorce 
And then I have the next chapter of memories go from the time of my parents' divorce until I was sexually abused. And then the third chapter is that abuse period, which was lasted five years. And then the last chapter is my memories of after that abuse up until this point. And so when I think about memories, I, I let them fall into one of those four chapters. And so my earliest memories really are before my parents' divorce in my first home, my first dog. I was probably three, I think, that I can remember going to my grandmother's house at Christmas. Yeah. Um, and, and all of that changed, of course, after the divorce. So those are my first. But when I try to remember something or think of something, that's where I land my memories in, in between those four chapters. That's really interesting that you've segmented your mm-hmm. um, your your the way you look at your life, especially because it's in four parts. But the fourth has is 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 probably longer than the first three, is it? Right, correct. You know, so, um, why do you think you've done that? Is it just they're like pivotal moments that kind of? I think change? it is pivotal moments, and it helps me define. Um, they were all traumatic for me. The divorce was traumatic. The eight the years up into the to the abuse wasn't traumatic, but it was, it was tumultuous because of my parents' divorce. And, and that affected everything in my life during that period. And of course, then once the sexual abuse started, that was a very, very traumatic time in my life. And that was five years of my life. And then I went from that moment on until my life now, which was wonderful, but it always had that shadow of that particular memory. But so it helped me frame my life, I think. And, um, help me deal with it as well too because if I didn't want to think about one part of my life I could think of another chapter yeah and I mean you often hear of people when they like um you know when they change career paths or when they you know get out of a bad relationship they're always saying I'm looking forward to the next chapter you know so it's it's interesting how you, you have pinpointed that that often those chapters are kind of the end or the, the, or the creation mm-hmm. of a traumatic event. And they're very defined. I, I mean, they're, yeah. they're date defined for me. Yeah. 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 So, so let's, let's just look a little bit more at chapter one before we delve into the others, because this is great. Now I have my, I have my structure for the interview sorted now. <laughs> um, so with chapter one, you know, you, you, were you the only child in your. Parents? No, um, I had a younger brother at that time. Um, and then my parents divorced and my mother remarried. And I had three more siblings after that. My father remarried and he had two stepchildren and another baby. So I had a, a menagerie of relatives and siblings that I had to often explain um, to my friends who they were. And um, that was, again, at a young age, kind of traumatic. But I basically, I, I, consider myself the oldest of five because I didn't live with my other sibling from my father's marriage. So I kind of left her out of the picture at the time because it was just easier. It was just easier to say I'm the oldest of five. Yeah. And as well as that, I think, you know, when you're a kid, it's and explaining and teaching other kids because, because often that happens, doesn't it? When you're a child from a a family with an unusual um, uh, composition, it falls in the kids to explain to the other kids what it is. So, and, it, and at that time, uh, this was in the early '60s. No one's parents were divorced. I was the only one in, in school that I knew of that had divorced parents, and so it was embarrassing for me to have my mother have a different last name. So, at one point, and I talk about this in the book, I just thought, well, the easiest thing to do is just to say my mom has a different last name because she remarried and my dad died. And so, for a long time, I would just yeah. say that my dad had died. Um, so that early. Uh, coping mechanism of of dealing with traumatic situations began pretty early for me. 
Okay, yeah, that that's really interesting. And like, did, just out of curiosity, did mm-hmm. your mother or father? How did they feel? No, did they know you were saying that your father? Had- oh no, they didn't know. I mean, oh. I would go to school and just say that. And I don't think I, you know, as a small kid, I was seven or eight years old. I wasn't processing. Okay, what if somebody really does find out or questions it? I just said, oh, I'm just going to say this and they'll believe me and that'll, that'll be the easiest way to explain everything. Yeah. And, and the thing is, when kids do that is often those things work. So there's not yeah. a reason yeah. to confront that, you know? Right. Um, now, at some point I began to say when I got older, I would just say my parents were divorced. But for, for yeah. a while, the way I coped with that was to make that as a that's how this whole situation occurred. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and when, when you were a child, I mean, you see, usually when I have guests on the, and they've written a book, it's, it's the vast majority of the time it's because they have a love of writing or a love of creating mm-hmm. a world or story. And your story is a completely different one. And that's why I was so excited to have you on. So usually I ask, like, was obviously you wrote the book for a, a, a lots of different reasons, mm-hmm. but were, was writing everything you thought you would do, or it was, it was, the writing a book purely a uh, development from? Yeah. No, I had never considered writing. Um, when I had done speaking engagements, so many people would say to me, oh, you should write a book. And I would think, oh, I'm not a writer. I, I can't write a book. But as time went on, I began to understand that my story was important and it could be a help to other people. And then I also was frustrated by the lack of understanding of clergy abuse. I was frustrated by the um, questions and judgment of why don't these women come forward sooner? And, you know, why did she not do this? And I was I thought, you know, I need to write this book not only for victims, but for educational purposes as well, because coming from the victim, I can tell you why we don't say no. I can tell you why we wait. I waited 27 years before I told anyone. And so that's why I wrote the book. I will say, however, once I began the process, I thoroughly started enjoying the process of writing much more than I ever thought. I mean, it was difficult because of the topic and it brought up a lot of emotional baggage that I had to unpack but I really did begin to enjoy the writing process itself. And I will say I, I, I had several editors. I had more than one editor because I wanted a lot of eyes on this book. I had many beta readers and it's a good book. I'm, I'm very proud of this book. It, and um, like I said, it wasn't something I would have thought that I would have ever done. But once I began, I, I did enjoy writing the book. Excellent. Uh, we'll, 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 dial, we'll delve much more deeper into the content of the book and the, the writing process later. But um, was there any hint in your childhood? And again, I, this is going to sound awful, putting the, the cause of the of the book, the abuse to one side, was there ever any hint of you becoming a storyteller later? Like, did you love reading? Did you love writing? Were you expressive? I did. I did like reading. Uh, I read a lot as a child. Um, I'm in a book club now. I mean, I've always enjoyed reading Um I think my storytelling, I just was always fascinated by my two grandmothers family history. And they were so different that I could take from each one of them a totally different story. And so I, I always was wanting to look at pictures from, you know, when they had in their old picture box and ask about their, the relatives. So I think that storytelling um, kind of, that was the start of where I really found a love of listening to stories and hearing stories. Excellent stuff. So that was chapter one, I'll say, in your mm-hmm. yeah. excellently segmented <laughs> memories. Um, chapter two was there, was there like 
like we've kind of said that as well like you were kind of coping with your parents splitting up and everything and from the sounds of it it didn't seem like it was an amicable um divorce or was no not really it was very tense um i saw my father just on the weekends and that didn't always happen because he didn't always show up on time or just failed to show up so that so and as the years went on um i saw him less and less i basically saw him at holidays and that was hard for me that was very i loved my father i love both my parents but the divorce was was it was hard on me and i don't know that i showed that as much uh, as a child but it was it was traumatic for me. So that period, and then I had a stepfather, which was an adjustment um, to do that. And then, you know, like I said, they, my mom had three other children, then my father remarried, and he had a child. And it was just a lot going on in my life, which then led me to why church became so important to me. Um, I My parents didn't go to church, um, but I was invited by my neighbor to go. And I did. And I just fell in love with church. I everything about it was something I enjoyed. I went to church camp. I taught Sunday school. I, it, it was just one of those places that the doors were open. I was there. I sang in the choir. I mean, I really there, there was an opportunity for me to be a part of the church. That's what I was doing. It was a place that I found people cared about me and they loved me. Um, I, I, I was I, the attention that I got there just from being involved in the church. It was just a great place for me. And spiritually, I grew. Um, it just, there wasn't anything I didn't, didn't love about church. And uh, when I was 13, I was baptized. And that really was a pivotal point in my life spiritually because it, it deepened my faith. It sent me on a journey of a deeper relationship with God. And I, 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 I couldn't say enough about how much that church meant to me. That's... Um... Very interesting, but also very heartbreaking because I know what happened uh, mm-hmm. soon after. But before we go on to that, and let's speak more about your relationship with the church. It's rare, from my experience, anyway. Um, and I've only lived once, uh, so I can't, you know, I can't say it my past life or anything. But in my experience, you know, it's it's rare to see a child become religious without the parent leading them along. Right. So, so you said your neighbor brought uh, invited you. Yeah, or? my best friend. She was a neighbor, uh huh. And she okay. invited me to go with her family. And again, I saw her family as the perfect family. They were, you know, m- mom and dad were married. Um, now they didn't have a happy life either because he was an alcoholic. So, but in my mind, they were married, and that was that made them the perfect family. And so, the grass is all I, cleaner, you know, and all yeah, that. yeah. So I was attracted to that family in the sense that I enjoyed being with them, and I think I had a need to have some stability in my life. And even at eight years old, that church provided that, um, and it was a safe place. It was. Um, the adults there treated all of the kids with such respect and and encouraged us and made us feel good about ourselves. And so it 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 filled a void for me that I think most eight-year-olds wouldn't have, but I did. And so that void was filled by the church. It's interesting because that's that's exactly what I was gonna say, that it sounded like it was giving you and not to say you weren't loved and you didn't get attention, right. it was giving you the, the love and the attention that you felt you weren't getting. Do you know? Right. Exactly. And I certainly had a loving home life. That wasn't the case. But in my mind, and again, not seeing my dad was traumatic for me. And the church was supportive to me in that. Yeah. So and then this this is this is the the, the most heartbreaking thing of that is to know that then it was 
it was the church or at least uh, an authority figure from the church mm-hmm. that then started abusing you. And, and in, you, you said in our correspondence before we met today, it was not just sexual, it was also emotional, it was also physical. But mm-hmm. like, I, I'd say, I feel like you'll agree that they kind of are all intermingled. Like, the, the, like it, was, it was definitely emotional, it was definitely physical, it was definitely sexual, but it's all kind of one th- form usually it is is right there's not just one i mean certainly you can have emotional abuse from a spiritual leader um but again like you pointed out in my case it was all three um which you know only added to the trauma um, of having to deal with this person who i thought cared about me who i thought i could trust um and then take advantage of me um i was um i just turned 16 when our church hired this new youth pastor um and so, as like I said, I was so involved in the church, and I was excited with this new youth pastor coming. Um, but he was eight, different. You with the church at this point, were you? So you, me? you first went when you were eight, and now you're six. Correct. You, you spent half your life. Yes, this was this was my church home life. It was my social life. It was everything about my. It was. Um, you know, everything about my life revolved around the church, and my friends were there. Um, I was. You know, I witnessed for Christ when I went out and to the school. I carried my Bible to school with me every day. You know, that's very unusual. Um, but I, I, I walked and believed in my faith until I met this man. And he really contaminated everything about my spiritual life. He stripped away those beliefs that I once held so dear um, with his abuse. Yeah. And like... Um, you're the first person I have spoken to that has suffered from abuse. Well, the first person that I'm aware of. Uh, right. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, not, uh, that has gone through clerical abuse. But being from Ireland, uh, and as I'm sure you're aware, but maybe listeners, right. you know, th- there's a there's a there's a his- deep deep history of clerical abuse. Well, in, everywhere, but in Ireland in particular, yes, there's quite a lot right. of horrible things done. So, like for me. I've never spoken to someone, as I said. And one thing I don't, I can never wrap my head around, and I'm hoping you can help me, is like, how did it, how did it start? Because surely it doesn't start um, where where everyone thinks it is. Do you know? Do you know what I mean? Like when you hear sexual abuse, your mind goes to one particular place, but that's not the beginning, is it? So how, no. How it um, and it's important to understand that beginning with any kind of abuse, whether it's in the church or not these men and sometimes women, it starts very slowly and methodically. It begins with what we call the grooming process, which is to gain the victim's trust. They look for vulnerable people, which I certainly was, and certainly children just by their age are vulnerable. But even adults can be vulnerable if they're going through a a, a crisis in their life, they've lost a loved one, whatever their issue might be. So they seek out people who are emotionally unstable or people who are in a crisis. And they appear to be helping this person through that crisis. They appear to care about this person in order to eventually abuse that trust. And so it starts very slowly. And they're usually very um, charismatic. They're very kind, loving people, especially people in the, in the spiritual world. We look to them as kind, good people who would never do anything to hurt anyone. So we've given them an automatic trust. We automatically trust them. So any signs that there might be that they could be doing something they shouldn't be doing, we, we, we ignore because this is the minister after all. This is the priest. This is the rabbi. 
So it starts like it begins like that, where it's a very slow and very methodical. But they, and especially in my case, he created a dependency that I had on him by always trying to help me. And he would call me into his office and say, let's talk about what's bothering you. And so I saw him as this kind, loving person who was only trying to help me. So that, that, that setup is right there. And so when the physical abuse or the physical touch begins, there's a confusion that's already set in. And for me, it, it occurred after one of our youth group meetings at, that was held at my home. And he waited for everyone to leave. He walked over to me, told me what a wonderful person I was and how thankful he was that I was in the church and how much I was helping. And, you know, I'm feeling good. This is wonderful. I, I, I certainly liked the attention he was giving. And then he bent down and he kissed me. And my first reaction was, I think he just kissed me, but this is my pastor. He wouldn't be doing anything he shouldn't be doing. I've misunderstood. And so I didn't, I just ignored it and thought this is his way of showing attention because it was, it wasn't quite, it was a kind of an innocent kiss in a way. And so it was one, and that's what they do as well. You know, they don't, he didn't push me up against the wall and try to kiss me. He made it so subtle that it blurred the boundaries of whether this was right or wrong. Um, And if I had said anything at the moment or tried to tell anyone, he could easily explain it away as, well, I didn't really mean it that way. She misunderstood. And I, at that point, that's really how I saw it. And I babysat for the family. So his, um, his access to me was pretty good. Uh, His wife worked evening. She wasn't there. He would come home. We'd sit and talk about the Bible. We'd sit and talk about church. So that seemed fairly normal to me. I mean, this was the pastor. And again, I liked the attention that he was giving me, but the kissing started to progress to more than just kissing to eventually he had sex with me. And once that happened, I then understood, okay, this isn't okay. I can't rationalize this away. And I began to feel guilty for what I was doing with this pastor who was married with two children. Mm. Um, He was 30 years old. I was 16 at the time. And so for me, I understood that this was a secret that I was going to have to keep. And he, and he told me that, you know, he said to me, this is something that no one can know. This is special between us. No one's going to believe you. And I'm thinking, no, they're not going to, everyone loved this man. He was just very charismatic. Uh, He came into our church and the, attendance exploded. And so I knew revealing this about it, about him would be a bombshell. And I didn't want to be responsible for that. So that's how it started. Very And and the grooming process, which I call, it took a year. It was a year before he actually had that's sex with me. Ask. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, oh. it was a year. Hey, right. I, I assumed it was a year in, until he first um, uh, physically touched you, but no, it was a year. Until... Yes. And and that's, again, they're very slow and methodical and they will take as long as they need till they think they've got you to a point that I think I could get her to this point and she's going to trust me and not say anything. Yeah. Um, and there's a guilt feeling from, from me is that here was this man who'd helped me all this time, who I cared about. So, you know, I didn't want to hurt him by saying anything to anyone. And again, I was embarrassed because I was participating in this relationship and I didn't want anyone to know it about me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that people would, who thought of me as this good Christian girl who was doing so much good things in the church. And then I was going to reveal this about myself. 
I mean, I didn't see it as abuse. You know, he he made it seem as this was something that was ordained by God and that this was, we were married in God's eyes and that because of me, he could do all these wonderful things in the church. And, you know, you add this to this emotional upheaval, you know, I didn't know what to believe. And I my only choice was to believe what he was telling me. Yeah, because that is the position he was in like even before right. before he started the grooming process with you that's the position he was in he was a position of authority he was the person you went to with your problems uh, and the the one thing that i i'm i'm reading between the lines a lot as well that kind of baffles me is he also put himself in a position that you would feel guilty by telling because as you said attendance of the church had blown up and he was hugely right. popular and he was charismatic so not only would you be ruining his marriage by coming forward and your own reputation, but you'd also be damaging the community. Absolutely. That, that played a huge part. A huge, huge part of your life. Yeah. And it w- it played a huge part in my remaining silent. But, but mostly, you know, he was very clear in making sure that I didn't tell anyone because he knew that, you know, no, he would say, you know, no one's going to believe you. And I began to believe that because I thought, well, no, I don't believe this is happening. And so I was very um, afraid. Once the sexual, it became so sexual, I, uh, he, he changed on a dime. He became a physically abusive. You know, I was once this perfect individual that could do no wrong. All of a sudden I was not smart enough. I wasn't pretty enough. I was too fat. Um, the, the emotional abuse that I took from this man took its toll on me to a point that I started to believe those lies. And I, I also found myself wanting to get out of the relationship, but I didn't know how. Um, The few times that I went to him and said to him, I can't do this. I feel guilty. We shouldn't be doing this. He would respond in one of two ways. One would be this loving, caring person, how much he needed me and how, how could I think about leaving him the how many he and the church needed me and that this was God's will. The other way he would respond will become um, physically violent um, and accuse me of, you know, Uh, There's no way you're going to be able to leave me. You can't leave me. I don't know why you're talking like this. And then he would always say to me, no one's going to love you like I do. You're no longer a virgin. And, you know, slowly but surely, I began to believe that. And so it's at one point, as I said, this went on for five years. At one point, uh, probably I would say three years into the relationship, I gave up. I just accepted it. This was going to be my life. And it would not be over until he said it was over. And I knew I'd never get married. I knew I'd never have children, that this was going to be my life. And for the next two years, I just accepted that this was how it was going to be. Um, like my, my, uh, like all I want to do is go back to the 16 year old Sandy and just grab you and like, <laughs> you know, right. try and help you. And that, that must be really frustrating for you now because well, of course it is, but I just mean to, to, how can I put this? When you're 16, you don't realize how young you are. Right. You know what right. I mean? Like, it's not until you're an adult and you look at 16-year-olds, you go, oh, wow, I was a, I was a baby. Like, I yeah. didn't know anything. And that actually happened when I my daughter turned 16. I remember looking at her and thinking, oh, my, this is how I, old I was when this first started, like you said, a babe. I mean, and I was... That was the first revelation I had because see, I, 
saw not this as, I didn't see this as abuse. I saw this as I was having a relationship with a married man who was the pastor. And that's how I framed it. And I framed it that way for 27 years. So I spent 27 years carrying this guilt and shame with me that I had done this. And so for me, it was never about abuse. It was always about hiding this information about what I had done. Um, and it, it was a heavy burden to carry for 27 years, not to tell anyone. And, and it ended the, the five years, it went for five years, but it ended because he was caught with me in a hotel room. Um, two people oh. um, from the church uh, got suspicious and followed him one night. And what happened then was he was called in to the elders and he was given his version of the story of what was going on. He told me that I should tell them if I'm asked any questions that this had only been going on for a year. And I think he did that for two reasons. One, I don't think he wanted them to know how young I was, but I also think he was at the church for five years. Within six months of his arrival, he was kissing me in my hallway. So I think he knew I can be forgiven for something that happened over a year, but if this had been going on for five years, they may not be so willing to forgive me. So his story to them was, this was a mistake. I shouldn't have done it. It was something that has only been going on for a year. He was forgiven. He was given a going away party and he was moved to the next church. About three months after that, when he finally did leave, I was called in by the elders And I was told because of my behavior, I was to leave the church. I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. That church was my whole life. And I I saw that they had forgiven him, but they weren't going to forgive me. And I've often told people that his abuse did affect my life for the rest of my life Mm. and still does. But the response of that church had a greater impact on my life than the actual abuse. Um, because if they had called me in to say, we want to help you as a victim, we want, what he did was wrong. That's not the, the message I got. And so I carried not only the guilt of having an affair with a married man, I carried the guilt and the shame of being kicked out of a church. I didn't want anyone to know that about me. I mean, how bad do you have to be to be kicked out of a church? Mm. And so for me, it was not only hiding the affair slash abuse. It was also hiding the fact that I was blamed for what this man did. It was not your fault at all. Well, no, it was not my fault. And it, but for 27 years, that's the message I gave myself. So um, that was hiding that all of that for 27 years. Yeah. Uh, And that that, there's one thing you keep saying, I find it very telling of how, um, how ingrained, this had become in you for those five years you you do you keep switching over and back between calling it an affair a relationship Mm -hmm. which like i have i have your hindsight to to work off i know it was abuse i can right so for me every time you say that i feel like going you mean abuse no it wasn't relationship. so that's how i saw it for 20 it's i absolutely know now it you know there's no question in my mind but i will tell you even after i i was aware that what he did was wrong i was just 16 this was even then i'd have moments where i would think okay it wasn't you know it wasn't i had to i had to get my mind because that's how I saw it for all that time. And, and it's, it's not an affair, even with an adult woman, you know, when 
when you're in a position of authority, especially a spiritual authority, and you take an advantage of a woman who comes into your office with a crisis in her life and you use her spiritual weaknesses to take advantage of her, that's absolutely abuse. So age is, you know, certainly children, any minor, that is, that's abuse, no matter, there's no yeah. excuses. But a lot of people find it difficult to feel like, okay, well, if it's an adult woman, she has the knows right from wrong and she should have said no. It's not that simple. Um, women in crisis. That's one of the reasons that he he said, say it was only happening a year because at that right. point you were what? Like, I was 21. 21, 22. So then right. you were an adult. Right. If it had been happening for four years, they're like, oh, this is with a minor. And it's, right. uh, one, one would hope that the right. elders, as you call them, of the church, that if they found out, well, actually no, it's been happening since she was 16, that they would right. have sided with you. But the other thing that I didn't uh, say, this was not his first incident. He, um, oh, okay. yeah, wow. right after he was hired at our church, he was at our church. Shortly after he was hired, a young woman from his first church came forward and accused him of sexual misconduct, and he didn't deny it. He said it was true, but he begged forgiveness, said he was sorry, said it would never happen again. And within six months, he was kissing me in my hallway. So this was the second time the elders were aware that this had been a problem for him and his behavior. Um, and yet you were blamed. And I was still blamed for that. Um, but again, I don't know what's narrative, what story, what facts, non-facts he gave to them. I was never asked any questions. I was simply told not to tell anyone, including my parents. I was told where to sit in church. I was told what to say if someone asked me a question. But I was never, no one ever asked me anything. I was, I was kind of the, the puppet to keep this man in his ministry and to keep his marriage together. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. This is, I, I like, is your head spinning yet? <laughs> oh, it, I'll be honest. It was spinning when I was doing my research for this. Um, and when I was looking through your website, listening to other podcasts you had been on, like my head was spinning then. And I thought I was prepared to hear all this coming from you directly again, knowing it was you, like you're the first person I spoke to that has had to have this been inflicted upon them. Mm-hmm. And still, I'm. it's still getting me. And I, I think, I think that's the real importance of speaking out about these, um, these issues and these incidences. I, there's one thing as well I wanted to comment on. Um, I think, I think what a lot of people, um, out, a lot of people that haven't been abused. Sorry, I, I don't know how else to say it. Like the 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 the, the people. Ugh, my words are not coming to me, but they'll come. I swear. I'm usually better at this. <laughs> this is how much you spun my head, Sandy. Congratulations. No, but what I'm saying is, like, I think the biggest damage that um, that happened, not to you, but to, to to everybody that has been abused, is the fact that every church seems to hide it and seems to accuse or not accuse blame the victim and mm-hmm. bury it away and move the minister on or the priest or the whatever mm-hmm. um to the next location and then it just happens again as a, as you were the second victim mm-hmm. that you know of um, right. of this person so what now is your relationship with not just your church that this happened in, but just organized religions in general. Like, how do you yeah. reconcile that? Well, I, as I said earlier, you know, he contaminated my spiritual life and it will never be the same. Um, 
I, I have a relationship with God. I didn't pray for 27 years, never opened my Bible. I mean, like I said, this was, I was a person who prayed daily, read my Bible daily. It, it remained closed for 27 years and I never prayed. I attended church because I wanted my children to have that experience, but I, I never would listen to the minister. I didn't, I would think of other things, what my grocery list was. I just could not, I, I had no connection to the church at all, but I did attend for my children, but my children never had a bedtime prayer with me. I couldn't do it. And I will tell you that is one of the biggest regrets of my life mm-hmm. that my children lost a lot of um, way. I would have raised them spiritually. Um, changed because of this man. Church now for me um, is better since I've been able to talk about my abuse. I understand the trigger factors when they occur within the church. Um, I have a relationship with God, um, but I am leery of organized religion. Doesn't mean I think it's all bad. And I think there's a lot of good that can come out of it. It's just something that it has it's been tainted for me and it, it brings back too many memories for me. I mean, think about this and I'm, I don't say this for a shock value, but I had sex inside the church um, with this man. And so, you know, it's, I can't like go entirely of those memories. And so it's better. Uh, I will say I can sometimes attend and I don't have as much uh, emotional feelings when I attend the church, but um, it's still there. It's still there. And I mourn. I mourn the loss of that. I, I really do. I, I, and I'm sad that this man took that away from me. I'm sad and I'm angry that he took that special part. I mean, think about our most people in their spiritual lives. That's a, a sacred part of their soul that gets them through difficult times. And they find a peace when they're in church. And there's a communion with church. And they connect with other people. You know, That's taken away from clergy abuse victims. It's taken away from us. I, and yeah, I think that's the thing. It, it so much is taken away. I mean, you, right. like as as your abuser um, pointed out, like even your virginity and your your, right. I'm sure your relationship with sex in general was affected for you the rest of your life. Like there's there's so much that is taken away. Right. And I talk about that um, in my book. It's a chapter called "Spiritual Wounds" because it's it's that to me is is the most damning part of what he did to me. Um, of, of taking that away from me. Think about it. If you or anyone else has an issue with their life or a problem in their life, they can go to their pastor, their rabbi, or their priest. They can find solace and prayer in church. Mm. Most clergy abuse victims, you know, can't find that. They don't have that avenue to go to because it's been taken away from them. Yeah, I, I, and it's I, not that we don't want it. I mean, it's you yeah. know that is, but it it, it the, that's what clergy sexual abuse does. Yeah. Yeah. It, it just, and, and not only that, but you in particular, and I'm sure you're not the only abuse victim um, in this situation, but also you were taken away from your community that you had. And like you right. said, it was, you called it your church family. You're in the choir, right. you were involved and like even that to have been taken away. It's, it's horrendous. And no wonder you didn't speak out about it for 27 years, which is literally a lifetime. Mm-hmm. So, so what did then, what, what was it that, what was it in year 27 that you're like, now I'm going to say something? And who did you speak to? I, first of all, I was going to my grave with this secret. There was never a time in my life that I thought I, I need to tell someone or maybe the time is right now. I was going to my grave with this secret. And at one point I, I got to thinking, you know, okay, my husband doesn't know. And I think 
pretty much he's never going to find out now. And I was getting pretty comfortable thinking, okay, I've gone 20 something years and this is good. But I was driving to my daughter's golf tournament. Um, This is the first chapter in the book. And I passed the exit sign for where this abuser left um, and went to this next church. It was where he went to after he left our church. And I saw that sign. I saw the name Queensgate and I just fell apart. It just, everything came flooding back. I felt like he was in the car with me. I could smell him. I could hear him. I pulled to the side of the road and I just collapsed and sat on the expressway by the side of my car sobbing. And it was at that point, I didn't understand because it's still, I'm thinking, why am I feeling this way? Because, you know, I've 27 years, I've never had this kind of an emotional reaction. And at that point, I knew I had to do something. I wasn't sure what it was. And even then, I didn't know it was abuse. Mm-hmm. I just knew that this person had hurt me. And I I was sad. I was more like, why did this person do this to me? And what did I do to deserve this? And that's when I began this journey of finally telling someone. So I told my best friend. Um, it took me 20 minutes to finally get the words out. I think I was sexually abused by my youth pastor. And then I cried another 20 minutes. She was very kind. She was very supportive. Um, It probably took me six, seven months to really believe that I'd been sexually abused and that I didn't really participate in this and that I had every right to expect that this man should have treated me as a member of the congregation and not someone to take advantage of. Um, But slowly and over time, I began to do all the reading I could on clergy sexual abuse, which helped a lot. And I tell victims, you need to educate yourself. You need to understand the words grooming and manipulation and gaslighting, because all of those things were done to you for the sole purpose of taking advantage of you. And I I began to just really quick mm because gaslighting is a word. I I know what it is, but Mm -hmm. I know gaslighting is a word that not a lot of people are aware. So could you just define gaslighting for us? So gaslighting is taking a person's perception of their reality and changing it. It's making the perception that they, you know, for example, abusers will say, you know, I didn't really say that you're crazy, or that's not what I believe you believe something different and you're crazy. So they, they make you believe that what you think you see and hear is not really there. Mm -hmm. And they do that by these kinds of, you know, manipulation and phrases that, you know, in other words, you're, when he would say, you're not very smart. Well, I, I thought I was, but maybe I'm not. And slowly over time, you begin, the reality you see is the reality they want you to see. And that's why it's so difficult to get out of the relationship because they begin to control your, your whole existence. So that's, you might have a better definition, but uh, that's, it's basically changing your perception of what's happening around you so that you no longer trust your own judgment. I, I first, I, I always knew what gaslighting was, but I didn't, um, I didn't, do you know, that kind of way, like, y- you know what it is, but when you don't have a name for it, you can't right. identify it. And there is a, there's a fantastic um, YouTube channel called Cinema Therapy, where a filmmaker and his best friend, who was a, a family therapist, sit down and they analyze movies. And they analyze um, the, the child's movie Tangled, which is the Rapunzel. Uh-huh. Yes. And they, they go through, here's the 11 signs of gaslighting. And here's what Mother Gothel does to Rapunzel and, and okay. all that. And it's just, it's it's fascinating. But the way they explained it was, it's forcing another person to doubt their perception. Of yes, you. absolutely. And, and that's, yeah. and once they do that, then you, you, 
whatever they want you to believe, you're going to believe. And, and yeah. then it, how do you get out of that relationship or how do you tell someone? Because now you believe you're the, you know, he would say to me, you know, the reason I'm not happy is because you don't know how to love me and you don't know how to make me happy. So that wasn't true, but that's mm. what I began to believe. So everything was my fault. So when you finally then came out with it and, and, and told this best friend, I'm sure there was a lot of, I'm sure there was a lot of steps between that day and writing and starting to write your book. So, so what was that process like to have to go through process heal? What, what was that like? Well, so as I said earlier, I began to educate myself. So once I began to understand what was done to me and that this wasn't something that that was a huge step to start understanding. The other thing that I did, I don't know that this is uh, every victim should do this or they're even able I confronted my abuser. I hired a private investigator, located him, and faced him. And that was healing for me. I, the meeting was disappointing. Um, I My expectations were too high, probably, for what I wanted from him. But I was thankful for the opportunity because for me to be able to finally look him in the eye and say to him, I know what you did. You had no right to do it. And, and so... I was grateful for the opportunity. That was another huge step for my healing process. Then I began uh, working with a ministry called the Hope of Survivors, which helps mostly adult women who've been abused by their pastors. And by helping others, that helped me um, in my own journey of healing. I began speaking at conferences and working with other victims. And then it was there that I began to understand my story had a reason. It had a purpose and it had a need. And that was when, so that was early 2004. I didn't start writing the book until 2016, 2017. Took me two years to write it. Um, And that, but, but again, that, that, that book came, the idea of the book came because I was frustrated by the lack of understanding and I also just knew victims needed to hear other victim stories. And my story is very complicated. There's a lot of twists and turns to it. I've been told it, it reads like a novel. Um, there's a lot in there, but I think victims can identify with some parts, maybe all parts of it. Um, and that's why, and, and I, I've thought over the years, what if at the time this abuse was occurring in my life, I'd heard someone's story? Maybe it would have given me the courage to come forward, or at least I would have known I wasn't alone. Because I can tell you, so many victims will say, I, I didn't think this was happening to anyone else. Or I've heard of sexual abuse, but I didn't think it was the same as mine. Or I wasn't sexually abused, I was having an affair. So when we hear other stories, all of our stories are important. Your story is important. Every story is important to someone else's life. And so for me, in writing the book, I felt like this was a purpose that I needed to write this book. You sound like a very driven and a very um, passionate woman about helping others. And I think that's a testament to you because to that, like, how can I put this? I've never heard of another person writing a book about a trauma for other people. I, I often hear well, I, it was a way for me to process things. It was a way for me to get things out. And I'm sure I'm sure it was that for you. But right. it seems for you that the driving factor was, I think this is going to help other people, so I'm going to do it. 
Yeah, I mean, I was I was driven by compassion for other victims, and I was driven by frustration and anger for the for the lack of understanding. And so I had the, it was twofold. That was the reason I I felt, and I I honestly I did it on a almost on a. My God, I'm going to do this. My husband and I were in the kitchen and I was so angry at a newspaper article that had come out and accusing victims of, of lying and that, you know, they wait too long and on. And I just said, I said, this is, this makes me so up, angry and upset. I said, I'm going to write a letter to the editor. And he said to me, you need a bigger form. You should write a book. And I said, I'm going to write a book <laughs> and that's sort of, and then I thought, oh my gosh, I said, I'm going to write a book. Now what do I do? I don't know how to write a book. <laughs> And that's, that's one thing I have to say blows my mind about memoir writers and particularly memoir writers who write about traumatic events um, because it's so hard to write a book. You know this. I know this. I write mm-hmm. fiction. I write children's fiction. You write something completely different. But we have that shared thing of we know how hard it is to write a book, to, to put aside the time, to figure out what, what right. where to put the words, etc. But what blows my mind about memoir writers in particular is you also have to relive traumatic events of your life and so what was that like this is going to sound like a stupid question but i have to ask it was that the hardest part of writing this book the the reliving or or was it the the thought of this could happen to somebody else like what was well i mean i think it was two things the mechanics of writing was difficult to to incorporate into personal stories so you know it's one thing when i was speaking to say i was sexually abused at the age of 16 end of story, people get it. When you write, I had to go into detail. You know, I had to say things that were personal. I had to, and that was really, really hard. Um, There was one week that I wrote about a personal issue in the book that I, I, I cried, I cried every day writing. I didn't, I couldn't write without just sobbing the entire time, but I made myself do it. And that was very, very difficult. There was also one chapter in the book. I had a, a cassette tape showing my age here, but had a cassette tape of one of his sermons. And I forced myself to listen to it. And that put me right back in that third pew of the church where I would sit every Sunday and watch this man preach about love and caring while he had just had sex with me the night before. And I I, I knew that I had to write about that sermon and how that made me feel, but I couldn't do that. I had a friend of mine who was a writer and I said, here's what I'm trying to convey. Here's what I want to say. Please write this chapter. I'll read it and edit it or change it how I need to. So there was one chapter that I absolutely, I couldn't because his voice was right there. It was all, it brought it too close to home for me to be able to write it. Yeah. Uh, That's, that sounds horrifying. And it just uh, like, I'm I'm genuinely blown away by your bravery and having to like not only did you confront your abuser face to face, but to even to listen back. Cause I mean it, it's a different thing. I'm sure like when you when you saw him face to face, he had aged, he had changed and right. you had changed. Now. And I was prepared, you know, I knew yeah. what I wanted to say. Um, and it was a different time. I had my husband there. I was I was I was very nervous. I was very scared that I would turn into this 16-year-old girl again. Um and be manipulated by him all over. I was, I was worried of would I say everything I wanted to say. It was, you know, he had his boss there. So there was, you know, it was, it was difficult, but that was different than actually going back in time and yeah. bringing myself into that time where he was preaching. And, and the sermon, the sermon was on family life and loving your wife. Um, 
ironically enough and mm. disgustingly enough, that was his sermon. Um, and so, yeah, I couldn't, I just couldn't write that chapter. Yeah. That's I, I'm speechless at the yeah. uh, things you've endured and not only that, but the things you've accomplished as well, because you, you're not just, you haven't just written the book. I mean, there's, there's so much else you've done for, um, for other abuse um, survivors and victims and everything like that. It just, and I, and it's all from the fact that I keep reminding myself, if I had heard someone's story, it may have helped me at the time. And I didn't have that. And so, and, and, you know, victims have said to me, um, my story has had an impact on them. And that to me is worth whatever pain it was to write this book. You know, and it was di- not difficult for my husband, but, you know, I was going to be sharing some very personal things and, but he, he was very supportive. Um, he's done a couple podcasts with me, which, you know, isn't something he would normally do or want to do, but because he wants to help me, he's done that. So he's been great about it. But again, I was going to be talking about some very personal things and, um, you know, it's, it, that's always, you know, something you think about when you, when you write a memoir that you, you can't, you've got to say everything that you need to say um, if you're going to really write this book. Yeah. Cause if you don't, readers yeah. who don't know you will know, right. Like they can, they can, they can see that you haven't filled in the blanks. Right. And then that's right. the other, that's the other thing. Then when people who do know you are reading it, they might necessarily want to fill in those blanks that readers yeah. who don't know you, you know, so it's, it's, yeah. It's a, a strange balancing act to have to do. Yeah. Now I'm going to ask a question that I, I um you you know it's coming so don't 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 get don't get scared. <laughs> but I'm going to say something first to anybody listening. I hope this question doesn't apply to you in the sense that I hope no one else that's listening to this is going through abuse currently or has in the past and hasn't confronted it. But just in case there is, um, Sandy, what would you say? to the 16-year-old Sandy that uh, the abuse had just started to, or the Sandy 26 years ago before she had realized what had happened to her? What would you say to those two different people? The first thing, what was done to you? This just didn't happen. This was done to you. You were targeted. You were put in a position that you should never have been put in. And whatever happened was not your fault. Whatever you think you should have said or should have done, you did what you did with the coping skills you had at the time. And this man had every right to, to respond in a loving, caring way and to protect you, not to hurt you and abuse you. So I, I, I cannot say it enough that you, any guilt and shame that any victim feels belongs squarely on their abuser. No question. It's not your fault. The second thing to understand is you've got to really educate yourself. And I know I've said this more than once through the podcast, but it's so important because until you understand that you were manipulated and that this man targeted you because of your vulnerabilities and used those against you, it's it, your healing can't begin until you understand what was done to you. Mm-hmm. And then if, you, if you've kept this secret, you need to tell someone. And I'm saying this from someone who knew how difficult, knew how I know how difficult that is because I'd spent 27 years keeping my secret. You need to tell someone. And it maybe it's someone outside the church because there could be people inside the church who are going to be supportive of this person. So you need to tell someone. And finally, there is hope and there is healing. You don't have to live with this shame and this guilt. You don't have to live with the secret. There is hope and there is healing. And then I would say to people who are in the church, be aware of victims of clergy abuse that 
things that you find comforting, like prayer and Bible reading, attending church, aren't always comforting to victims of clergy abuse. So be, I, I guess I tell people, don't say to a victim, I'm going to pray for you, or I'll pray for you. You might ask their permission first, because that will tell them that you understand how difficult prayer might be for them, and that they may not want you to pray for them. That doesn't mean they're... they're against prayer, it's just a trigger factor for them. So just be sensitive to those kinds of things when you're dealing with someone who's been abused within the church, whether it's, you know, clergy or a choir director or a Sunday school teacher, someone who is a spiritual authority who has abused another individual has really damaged their spiritual life to a point that the things that were once dear and precious to them are now uncomfortable thoughts and trigger factors. That is... um excellent advice for all the different people that that as i said in a way i hope that doesn't apply to anybody and i'm sure you do but it's something we just have to say in case there's even even if one there's one person that hears that that it might be relevant to that that, i suppose that's the whole point of your mission now of of Mm -hmm. writing the book and of all the speaking you've done and everything that's that's your kind of raison d'etre now um we'll finish on a lighter note because this has been <laughs> a very heavy podcast through no fault of your own. Yeah. Um, let's be clear. <laughs> um, so I have my set questions. My my regular listeners will know these questions off by heart, I'm sure. Um, my first is when we've um, hit stop on our record button and said a good looks and goodbyes and whatever's, what's the first thing you're going to do today? Take a deep breath. <laughs> I, like these are... Um, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> deep breath. And then I'm going to walk my dog. <laughs> it's really funny because I can always tell what because what, basically I kind of always record at the same time because it suits me but because I interview around the world people always say you can tell what time zone like some people are like I'm gonna have my breakfast some people are, I'm yeah. gonna go to bed you're gonna walk your dogs it's really interesting um what are like I suppose you're an unusual writer for this show in the sense that you you wrote with a particular purpose and you've kind of achieved mm-hmm. that purpose and I'm sure you're going to keep working towards helping other abuse uh, victims but is there any other things you'd like to do with this new writing skill you've acquired? Are you thinking of writing another book of any kind? Or um, it- yeah, I haven't thought about another book, but I'm doing more blogging. I like to do some blogging. Um, this isn't really a book, but I would really like to write a family history and detail some. I mean, I love genealogy and I love family history. So I think my writing would take me there. I, I've got a, a better idea of, of explaining and, and showing instead of just telling. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to describe my grandmother in a way that I wouldn't normally have thought of describing her because I, I have those skills now. So probably writing in my my family history. Excellent. So, and then what about what are kind of the goals for you that have nothing to do with um your your book nothing to do with writing just what's one thing you'd like to achieve in the future i would like to return to switzerland i visited there many years ago and i would love to go back to switzerland at some time um, it wasn't for covid i'd be like do it tomorrow i I know i know and actually i had almost had a trip planned with some friends and then it covid did come and yeah yeah, it, it it's a doable doable thing bucket list kind of thing so i know that if i really put my mind to it but i would love to go back to switzerland it's one of my favorite places on earth you should you deserve to go wherever you want to go (laughs) not just after everything that you went through but after having to relive it again in another podcast because i'm sure i'm not the first and i won't be the last um 
uh, I have two last questions and that's us. So my second last question is where can people find you online if they want to reach out to you for any reason, even if it's just to buy and read your book? Um, I have a uh, website, which is my name. Uh, it's www. It's Sandy, S-A-N-D-Y, Phillips, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S, Kirkham, which is K-I-R-K-H-A-M. So it's sandyphillipskirkham.com. I have a Facebook author page, which is just my name again um, under author. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, but my my website has a lot of good information there, and, and you can buy my book there. The book is also available on Amazon, and it's coming out in paperback um, probably the end of this month. It's also on Kindle. So, um, and right. I, I would encourage people to buy it even for like their church libraries. Maybe it would be a good resource because oh, yeah, it's course. not just my story, but as I said earlier, it, it, I, I try to explain cur- clergy abuse and and how churches can um, prevent and then also handle clergy abuse if it were to occur in their church that's excellent and as always there'll be links in the description and there'll be the blog post on my website with um everything sandy has said and and more and links directly to the book and everything and uh my final question sandy is what was the last book you read uh four wins um which was about the dust bowl in the united states on the far west plains um that was a great book. Um, it, it was a fictional book, but it talked a lot about history of the Dust Bowl and how during the Depression and how these people suffered and what they had to do in order to survive the Dust Bowl. It was, it was a very interesting book. But I want to say what my favorite book is because I love this oh, book. Dude. And I, I wanted, I'd like to promote It's an older book. That's and it's it. by it's by Stephen King. Don't let that turn you off. It's totally different than Don't, anything he's ever written. <laughs> you have me hooked. <laughs> I'm like, come on, which one? What's your favorite? Go. <laughs> it's 112263, which is about, I mean, you know, um, this man who has a time machine and he goes back into time in the late 50s. And the idea is whether he's going to prevent the assassination of John F. Kennedy, which happened on 112263. Fascinating book about the morals of whether you could want to change something in history should you be able to change history uh, I was fascinated by the descriptions of the times in the late 50s early 60s because that's when I was a child so reading about the different kinds of lifestyles and the cars and you know it was it's a great book by Stephen King and I, it's one of my, it's my favorite book of all time I just love that book it's it's a, it's an excellent book. Uh, yeah. I totally agree with you. And he's an excellent writer. And I think anyone who's written anything should read multiple books by Stephen King because my God, that man can write in he any genre write. he wants. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sandy, I I can't uh, can I begin to fully express my gratitude for you coming onto the show. But uh, all I can do is just say thank you very much. Well, I certainly appreciate the opportunity. It's been a great time speaking with you, and uh, you're a great host. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I'll, I'll, yes, you are. We'll see. <laughs> okay. Thanks once again to Sandy for coming onto the show and sharing her story. Now, if you are affected by anything discussed in this episode, either directly or indirectly, you will find links to charities and organizations designed to help victims of clerical sex abuse. Uh, there are links for Ireland based and US based charities. However, if you would like help with finding something, Um, in your own country or region, please get in touch and myself or Sandy will try and find something suitable for you. Now, before I let you go, I would like to mention two exciting endeavours in my own writing life. Um, 
So the first is that children's fantasy book. I mean, I know you've you've heard me talk about it for something like three seasons now. It's ridiculous, I know. But uh, I've made a big decision with it. I've decided to turn it into a trilogy. Um, so the trilogy is... I, I've now trying to work out where the breaks will be and everything, um, but the 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 back is broke, and the way I'm splitting it is hopefully going to help me write it more quickly. So essentially, the first book is the one with the biggest changes. So it's actually start the start of the whole story is the biggest change, but the end is going to be the same. So um, book one will take the longest, and then book two uh, less amount of time, and then book three will be the least amount of time. So hopefully, everything will balance out. Um, so that's the first thing. The second exciting thing is that Story of a Storyteller is now a big brother. That's right. Um, it's no longer my only podcast. I am now also the host of WonderPod, the official podcast of Wonderfest. Wonderfest is an online children's book festival that's based in Ireland. However, it is celebrating Irish children's writers and Irish children's books and Irish children's illustrators, but it is online. So if you are interested, you are free to check it out. The program launched today. So if you go to wonderfest.ie, you can check out all the wonderful events. Haha, <laughs> get it. That <laughs> Wonderfest is having. So there are three branches to Wonderfest. There's Wonderfest schools. I think that's fairly obvious. And um, that is for Irish schools only. Uh, then there's Wonderfest families, which is family events. So people at home that want to check out books. And then finally, Wonderfest Inspires. Now, the Wonderfest Inspires is probably more what you, dear listener, would might be interested in. Um, it's for anyone who's interested in becoming a children's author or illustrator, or hey, even both. There's um, webinars, masterclasses, um, all sorts of things like that. Uh, so check out the link for Wonderfest and give Wonderpod a listen to. Um, episode two of Wonderpod actually came out today, the same episode as this, the same day as this episode is coming out. So that's it for my own personal news. And that's it for this week. And with that, season five has officially started. Woohoo! So <laughs> tune in next week, where I'll be talking with former criminal lawyer, Raina Marder Genton, about how she got started in writing, her latest book, and her law career in general. Uh, Raina was a joy to talk to, and you'll find her story and her career extremely fascinating. I guarantee it. But until then, see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you loved listening to this episode just as much as I loved recording it. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or over on Podchaser. Until then, be good, be brave, and tell stories. See ya!